you hear examples of like people who are like know everything down, like know their volume load down to the like 0.5 of a kilo and they have every week planned out. And then you see examples of top level lifters who just like, I'm going to work complete. up, I'll work up to an eight this week, maybe. And then like next week I might go heavier. And it kind of makes you think when you hear examples of both ends of the spectrum with, that, and with what you were saying, training is important, but maybe not all of the equation. If you just do something relatively intense with with relative intensity three four times a week yeah that's that's going to be (laughs) so do you want to describe your training greg um so are we talking like when i'm like actually training or just what i'm doing now um well a bit of both so like what what would a how would you go about training for a powerlifting meet or a powerlifting meet you've done in the past and then maybe segue into what you're doing now Okay, uh, so leading leading up to my last meet, um, with the the prep went well until nature decided it didn't want me to compete well. Um, so I was I was aiming at a two thousand total, so a nine ten kilo total, uh, and it, it it looked like it was going to be pretty doable. And then I was in vacation up in the mountains, like over Christmas. And slipped on some ice and like landed awkward and jacked my back up. Oh my! So you know, what? Just, we, we were just bad. Yeah, we, we were just making <laughs> yeah. noises of sympathy and pain. It was like the dumbest thing. Like if it was a wolf attack, then it would at least be like kind of a cool reason why I showed up at the meet and shit the bed. But no, it was just that like I was clumsy and slipped on ice and landed weird. But anyway, other than that, like unfortunate occurrence. Uh, prep for. Prep for the meet went really, really well, and uh, about two weeks out, I was in like the strongest condition I've ever been. So to get there, uh, I was training. I was in the gym six days a week. Four of those were serious training sessions, and two of them uh, were more just like maintenance sessions. Just because, like, when I'm training hard, I'm inflicting a lot of abuse on my body. So two days a week were just dedicated primarily to just making sure everything felt good um, and just, you know, so I wouldn't lock up and shit wouldn't hit the fan. Uh, so of those four days that were pretty serious training, um, I was squatting twice a week, deadlifting twice a week, and benching three times a week. So generally training two lifts per session. Um For the squat, both sessions were pretty hard. Uh, So I was competing in wraps. One of the sessions would be in wraps and quite heavy. The other would be without wraps and quite a bit higher volume. Uh, So that was mostly 70, 75% one rep max for sets of three to five, but a ton of sets. Um, Just getting a ton of volume in and doing mostly just like speed work. So... Uh, cheap volume, not really close to failure, so I get a training effect, but it doesn't cause all that much fatigue. Um, the wrap squatting, generally it would be up to a top set uh, around RPE 9, trying to hit uh, rep PRs for the most part, um, and just kind of taking it week by week. So starting with an 8 rep max, then 5 rep max, then 3 rep max, then 2 rep max, and then starting over. So just repeating those four consecutive rep maxes three times um, leading up to the meet. And then not much, and then like pretty much no drop back sets after that. It was just one hard set and then 
uh, moving on to accessory work. For bench, uh, I had one heavy session that mimicked those squat sessions and then uh, another lighter power day that mimicked the other like squat 70, 75% day. And then just kind of like one bodybuilding pipe bench session. So um, higher reps, closer to failure. Um, and then for deadlifts, it was one hard deadlift workout that, again, looked a lot like the hard squat and bench workout. Um, and one day, generally of some sort of deadlift variation, um, that was pretty easy for the most part. I can't, I can't recover from like pulling hard two days a week. Um, but mostly just to get some extra pulling volume in, uh, and keep the group fresh. Um, and so within just to use like some periodization buzzwords, uh, the overall trend of it was linear. So starting from uh, higher volume, lower intensity building to lower volumes, higher intensities. And within like a weekly setup, it was DUP ish. So I was training every lift twice a week. Uh, but not with the same volume and intensity every time. Um, so yeah, that's, that's more or less what my training looks like now, uh, when I'm taking things like pretty seriously and trying to peak, uh, otherwise, so what I'm currently doing like right now, cause I don't have anything on the horizon. I mostly just train for fun. Um, like definitely still trying to get stronger. Um, but since I'm not really aiming to compete anytime soon, uh, I just want to enjoy what I'm doing in the gym. Uh, so what I enjoy doing in the gym is maxing out all the time. <laughs> so it's like kind of Bulgarian method ish, uh, but not in the gym seven days a week. It'll usually be somewhere around five-ish days a week, uh, just working up to uh, one to three rep max for some sort of variation of squat and bench, getting in a hard deadlift session once a week, and then after I work up to my daily max for squat and bench, just doing bodybuilding work, just to chase a pump because it's fun. <laughs> that does sound fun. Yeah. <laughs> Cool. Cool. So, Greg, we've got a couple of reader questions. Um, some of them look like they're pretty massive topics and would probably be a podcast of their <laughs> own. So if there's anything that you think's huge, then maybe um, you should give us kind of an overview. And if you have any resources on, on your website to direct people towards. Um, so Lucas asks, what's your favorite beer? That's obviously the, the, the biggest question. Uh, my favorite beer is the West Platerian 12, but it's expensive and hard to find. In terms of like more affordable beers that are easier to find, um, the St. Bernardus ABT 12 and the Rockford 10 are my two favorites. Cool. Um, Very specific answers. Yeah. So he also asks, and you've kind of covered this a little bit, training programming when peaking for a meet. Let's say you have, he says, let's say you have a four week run up to a meet. Would you put the comp, would you keep the competition lifts in and volume low and intensity up or anything else? <laughs> I mean, if, if by four weeks out there's not really all that much you can do uh the last four weeks are pretty much just showing you if your prior training was effective or not um 
So just kind of like all other things being equal, if you're four weeks out from a meet and it's like, oh shit, I need to peak now, what do I do? Uh, then yeah, uh, pretty high intensity, so 85% plus for the most part. Um, you know, normal-ish volume, training each lift two to three times a week. And then um, first two weeks, volume kind of moderate-ish. Uh, they should be pretty hard training weeks. The third week should be uh, relatively easy, mostly just hitting your openers volume way down, and then the fourth week deload rolling into the meet. Cool, sounds good. So, do you, when you would when you peak in general, um, like within four weeks or outside of four weeks, do you often try and hit a new one rep max, three rep max, two rep max, or do you, do you stay stay clear of stuff like that? Uh, I. I mostly hit rep maxes. Um, generally, if I'm generally, I don't hit like true one rep maxes in the gym uh, on the competition lifts. So yeah, I'll generally the last like two or three hard training weeks, I'll hit like a five rep max, a three rep max, and a two rep max uh, at like a solid RPE ten. Uh, but I, I save the singles for the platform. Cool. Um, so if I had a question for your recommendations on squatting with patella tendinopathy, I assume and you've got a big guide on your website on just all things squatting. Yeah. That'd be the best place to go. Uh, no, there's actually an article on my website about squatting with patella tendinopathy. Oh, wow. Let I, I did not write it, so I do not <laughs> answer any questions. Uh, but my friend Jason Yuri, who's a, a very good physical therapist, um, he has a really good article on the site about squatting with patella tendinopathy. Okay, so it's, I would recommend that. Yeah, it's very in depth, as um, in in line with the rest of the stuff on the website. Um, Mike O'Neill asks, "How would you train a 52 year old who is a bit overweight? Me, there is just not enough info out there for us old dudes." It's not, it's not all that different from anyone else, really. Um, I mean, so just dealing with, like, population averages, if you're, like, if you're in your 50s, you're probably not going to be able to handle quite as much training volume. You're probably, or possibly going to be a little bit more uh, injury-prone. Um, Recovery's not going to be quite as good. So that's just population averages, but there's like massive variability within that. So like I've trained dudes in their fifties who like recover way better than the typical 20 year old dude. Um, and then I've trained plenty of 20 year old dudes with just absolute garbage tier recovery. So, I mean like it, it all comes down to training the individual, not like that person's demographic group. Um, so yeah, I mean, just essentially what any other lifter would do, like try something, monitor. If you're getting better, stick with it. If you're not getting better and you feel worn down all the time, you probably need to dial it back. If you're not getting better and you feel fresh all the time, you probably need to increase volume or intensity. Cool. <clears throat> so we had we had somebody ask a question about your article on grow like a new lifter. Um, so this was the the idea that if you if you do take some time off training, um, you, you reset some of the sensitivity to the anabolic signaling to hypertrophy and strength. And it doesn't, it, it means that you don't end up, um, 
regressing too hard or at least the concept of muscle memory may there may be some truth to that and that that everything will will be okay um it was more that so we you were talking about the repeated bout effect as kind of being the barrier to muscle growth and adaptation and i think the criticism was more around whether the repeated bout effect is necessary to allow you to handle greater loads and greater intensities and um whether the so in the comparison of the studies i realize this is getting quite specific um the uh the comparison of the studies the the of the groups where one group took some time off training and the other group just carried on um when they plateaued that maybe if the group who continued with the program were to introduce a new stimulus rather than take time off entirely that that may have allowed their gains to continue um so i guess that's that's the first part of the question then the second part is what would be the practical applications for somebody if you have to take some time off particularly when you slipped on the ice for example um how what what would you recommend for someone to um use a layoff to their advantage rather than uh, regress too much okay so yeah there there are a lot of parts to that question um so yeah, first things first, with that article, um, I would I would first recommend people look at the disclaimer that I put at the top of it. Uh, I don't agree with a decent amount of what I wrote in that article. So I recommend people, like, when they come across that webpage, um, to, like, read and learn the myonuclear domain theory stuff, because that is, like, very relevant, important, and I, like, still 100% agree with everything I wrote in that part of the article. Um, in terms of the rest of it, it's not necessarily that I think it's untrue. It's just that I'm less confident that it's true than I was before. Um, just because like that, that is an area that hasn't been researched enough in my opinion. So just in general, there's, there's a ton of research about what, uh, like aids in muscle growth in, well, just what aids in muscle growth, but there's essentially none on what ultimately limits muscle growth. Uh, so those are two like slightly different considerations. Um, I personally think that inability to add more myonuclei is very likely to be the thing that bottlenecks muscle growth. Uh, the reason I say that is, is twofold. One in... Uh, in pretty much every study that I've seen, at least, that looks at um, muscle protein synthesis in trained lifters versus untrained lifters, or just in trained lifters, period, um, resistance training is still like a very potent anabolic stimulus for muscle protein accretion. Um, like, it's not quite as, as strong of a stimulus as you see in untrained people, but there's still plenty of muscle protein synthesis going on. You still see like a normal looking increase in muscle protein synthesis following feeding. Um, if you if you just looked only in muscle protein synthesis stuff in trained lifters versus untrained, you would essentially come away with the conclusion that like you you sort of expect a trained lifter uh, to keep gaining muscle, but it maybe half to a third the rate an untrained lifter would. 
but obviously that doesn't happen because if someone, if you took someone's like new gains, uh, cut them in third, like array wise, and extrapolated that over twenty years, then everyone looks like oh, Ron. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Like, so obviously that doesn't happen. Uh, so I don't think, I don't think uh, muscle protein accretion, like m- muscle protein synthesis versus breakdown. I don't think that that is is likely to be the bottleneck for muscle growth. The reason I think it's myonuclein is um, one because like that has been shown in untrained lifters uh, to to be like a very strong determinant of how effectively people will hypertrophy. So uh, just to back up a little bit, you're your muscle fibers are single cells, but they're multinucleated cells. So the majority of cells in your body only have one nucleus, but muscle fibers have a crap ton of nuclei, uh, and they're called myonuclei. And there's this thing called myonuclear domain theory, which uh, based on a lot of experimental results, mostly from Gunderson and Bruscard, if memory serves, um, each each myonucleus can essentially like oversee a finite uh, volume of sarcoplasm, like a finite area of like volume within a muscle fiber. And so under normal conditions, if you have a given number of myonuclei in a muscle or in a muscle fiber, that fiber will grow until each myonucleus is overseeing its maximum amount of sarcoplasm. And once you hit that point, you're at what's called the myonuclear domain limit. Um, and essentially the muscle fiber will just stop growing until it adds more myonuclei to oversee a greater like volume, uh, inside that muscle fiber. So when looking at studies, uh, on untrained lifters, they find that the ability to add more myonuclei is a very strong predictor of how effectively someone's going to grow. So even in untrained people, if someone uh, isn't able to to adequately fuse more myonuclei to their muscle fibers, they get very, very little hypertrophy. So they'll grow up to that myonuclear domain limit, or each of their fibers will grow up to that myonuclear domain limit and just stop. Um, versus people who like do have a more like robust response, being able to add more myonuclei, they, their fibers grow more because since their muscle fibers fused more myonuclei, their current uh, level of sarcoplasm is like further <laughs> below the myonuclear domain limit. So I think I think that that, that is um, uh, a likely it, right now. I think that's probably the most likely candidate uh, for the thing that's going to bottleneck hypertrophy in the majority of people. Actually, no. For the majority of people, the thing that's going to bottleneck it is just pure sheer laziness <laughs> yeah. but for the people not bottlenecked by laziness i think it's probably going to be something related to myonuclei um and when you look at like ability to fuse more myonuclei it seems to be to some degree related to muscle damage um but there's not there's not enough work there yet to kind of know all of the specifics. Um, so yeah, like maybe just like the sort of low level of muscle damage you get in just normal day-to-day training 
maximizes the like myonuclear accretion. So you don't really need to go out of your way to do anything to cause more muscle damage. Or maybe you do need like more muscle damage to, to cause that response. We, we really don't know yet. Uh, so anyway, the thing I posited in that article is that potentially just taking time off training um, to make your muscles a little bit more susceptible to muscle damage um, would would then help with uh, myonuclear accretion and potentially like raise that ceiling of how many gains you can make very, very slightly. Uh, and so in theory, repeated enough times that may do something good. Uh, and I, I think it's also important to point out, if you read back through that article, I never said, this is what you should do. This is exactly how it works. It was essentially like, here are some neat mechanisms. Maybe this is worth a shot. Um, so in terms of a study that would be able to test a hypothesis like that, I'm kind of thinking about maybe doing that as my master's thesis. Uh, cool. there, there are a few things I have in mind, but that's, that's one of the front runners right now, as long as my advisor likes it. Um, I'd be really interested to read that because I think, as you said, that we seem to maybe have likely correlates for what the limiting factors of muscle growth are. And obviously it is multi, multifactorial and there's, there's many parts to the equation, but to be able to see experimentally what happens and derive some practical applications for it would be really cool. Well, I'm, so I, I would be primarily studying muscle damage itself. Um, and so how that basic experimental setup would look um, would be taking hopefully trained lifters, splitting them into two groups, and one of them doing just like normal reps for 12 weeks or something. Um, so, you know, eccentric, concentric, just normal, typical reps. Uh, then work match another group where they'd be training maybe two to three weeks of purely eccentric and then two to three weeks of purely concentric and going back and forth a few times. Uh, Cause like eccentrically biased training causes more muscle damage and concentric only training actually uh, increases your susceptibility to uh, muscle damage in subsequent eccentric sessions. So essentially like uh, a week or two or three of purely concentric training would cause you to have more muscle damage uh, when you reintroduce eccentric training than doing absolutely nothing during that time period. So essentially what, what that would test is uh, the group just doing normal training throughout when they first started their program, they'd probably have some sort of like muscle damage response within like the first week or so, which would more or less go back near baseline and have pretty minimal muscle damage the rest of the study. Versus the group doing like work matched, so volume would be the same, but alternating eccentric and concentric for like different small training blocks, they would have like four or five or six bouts of muscle damage over that time period. Um, and then after that, training everyone basically the same way for like six weeks. So seeing if like basically six periods of muscle damage primes you for more growth in subsequent training than one bout of muscle damage. So I, I think that would be like an experimental way to kind of test the hypothesis that muscle damage is meaningful for hypertrophy to some degree. The, the typical way, the way most studies just do it, 
one of two things. Either either they'll just look at just like a simple correlation between muscle damage and hypertrophy within uh, a population that's all trained the same way, which I don't think that's ideal because obviously there are plenty of confounders between people. Um, and the other way would be essentially to take a group of untrained people and train one group in such a way that they have like very, very like pretty much zero muscle damage, like increasing volume and intensity very gradually. So one group doesn't ever have any measurable muscle damage over the course of the study versus throwing the other group just into normal training right off the bat. So they do have like one period of like increased muscle damage uh, and then seeing like what effect those things have. And my issue with studies designed like that is I don't know that you would really expect just like one period of muscle damage to have that much of an effect, especially on untrained lifters who you would expect to grow a lot in response to anything anyways. Um, anyway, so maybe you'll be hearing about that. <laughs> Hopefully, yeah, but you're right. It sounds like there's a lot of, it's, it's, it's very difficult to, to isolate the effect that you're looking for. Um, interesting you said about <clears throat> concentric only training, mm -hmm. making the, um, increasing the muscle damage from eccentric training after that. Is that maybe that, so your muscles kind of drop the defenses, um, from eccentric training while you're doing while you're avoiding that and then you, you're sensitized to it when you reintroduce it pretty much yeah it's it's interesting that it's interesting that concentric training increases your propensity for muscle damage more than just complete rest does oh really yeah i suppose because yeah. you're getting stronger so you can then but yeah for it not yeah that is uh yeah. i'm I'm pretty sure there's research on that, but I haven't read it yet. Um, like delving into the mechanisms as to why. But yeah, in terms of of uh, the repeated bouts effect and like your body's protective mechanisms against muscle damage, pretty much all of them come about via exposure to eccentric exercise. Um, so yeah, the the key to to resensitizing someone to muscle damage would just be uh, taking some time either. Uh, resting or doing concentric only training um, just to remove the eccentric for a while. But yeah, I I think I'm very open-minded about the relationship between muscle damage and growth. My, my assumption is that some moderate level of muscle damage is probably going to be superior to just a shit ton of indiscriminate muscle damage and no muscle damage whatsoever. That's, that's kind of my assumption, but, uh, I'm also like very forthright about the fact that I don't think there's enough good evidence to form a strong opinion, like for one position versus another. Um, it, it's been shown pretty conclusively that for untrained lifters, muscle damage is not necessary for hypertrophy, but I don't think there's, um, I don't think there's adequate good work to, to kind of elucidate like a dose response relationship for muscle damage um, in, in more well-trained lifters. Very interesting. So what about with yourself then, Greg? You said when you, when you slipped on the ice, you had to kind of, um, you, you, you were in a bit of a corner because you had a competition coming up. Um, what did you do after that? And um, if, you, if you do find you get injured, 
what do you do to adapt your training around that and keep things moving? Uh, so yeah, that, that was, that was just super unfortunate. Um, I like, it really was like just the competition window that was screwed. So three days after the meet, I, uh, was pulling what I was like before I got injured and like five days after the meet, um, I was squatting what I was before I got injured. So if the meet would have been the next weekend, I still would have put up a good total. Oh, it was just, <laughs> yeah. Worst so possible I, it timing. Was, yeah. It was, um, like I had SI joint issues. So like the way I fell, it just kind of like flared that up for a couple of days. And then once that calmed down, I was perfectly fine again. So I ended up actually not having to take much time off training, um, which, which was good. But just kind of in a more general sense, if you have to take time off, then easing yourself back in. Um, the biggest consideration is just how much time you took off. So if you're out of the gym for a week, like you can go back to training however you were before. That's not going to change anything. If it was like two or three weeks, have like maybe one lower volume, lower intensity introductory week. So whatever your training looked like before, maybe not 10% off of the intensity and about 30% off of the volume for that first week back. Second week back, go back to normal training. If it's a considerably longer layoff, then um, I'd recommend basically just treating yourself like an untrained lifter uh, until you get back to about 90% of your old strength levels or so. Uh, so just take like a basic linear progression, just you know, start with something relatively easy. So maybe like 60% of your old maxes for sets of five ish and just add weight every session until you're back to around 75, 80% of your old maxes for sets of five. And then at that point, just jump back into training however you would prefer. Cool. Some good, good practical recommendations. I think it's probably a week or two is probably the most that your average person like is forced to take off unless you're know, going I traveling mean, or something. Assuming you actually like lifting. Mm, of course. Yeah. I that's... think you have to make that assumption that don't you? Like if people absolutely hate something and they're worried about stopping doing it, then kind of like, what's, what's the, what's the concern? Yeah. You would, you would be, you would be surprised by that actually. <laughs> people who are just, um, they're just being forced to lift when they hate it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do come across a fair amount of people who only lift because they feel like they should, like they think they're supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> like that just sounds miserable. Like my yeah, doctor because they saw me, people's t-shirts that were like, "Do you even lift?" And they were like, oh, "No, well, well, I don't." But I suppose I could. <laughs> Why did you remind me? Yeah. <laughs> Considering it's hard, like it's hard and unpleasant, especially while you're doing it. So if there's no intrinsic reward and you don't enjoy it, then torture which which i i will note that's actually pretty common um like the the level of intrinsic reward to exercise in general varies just massively between people um the the way you can study this best is actually in rodent populations um because you can you can manipulate them better so an in, in interesting set of studies took um like a, a particular line of 
like very, very genetically similar rats or mice, I think. Um, and each, each generation, what they did is like they tracked their activity level. So how much time they just spent on the wheel, um, and would separate out, I think like the top 10 percentile and the bottom 10 percentile and put them in like different cages and then, you know, have them breed another generation and then keep iterating that. And within like six or seven generations of mice, um, that, you know, starting out were, were very, very similar and had pretty small fluctuations in just like normal activity levels. By like six or seven generations, you're looking at like eight to ten fold differences in activity, not with like the researchers forcing them to exercise, just like the amount that the mice chose to exercise themselves, which is like a pretty decent proxy for like the intrinsic reward they get from exercising. Um, and so like that... That actually does uh, parallel what you see in, in humans pretty well, Ob but obviously not to nearly the same degree because, you know, there's no selection pressure for, like, laziness. But, yeah, so that some people – and I think that is something that, that folks like us in the fitness industry don't – and not saying, like, this about you guys in particular, but just a lot of people in the fitness industry – most of us love exercising. Like I love lifting heavy stuff. That's like easily one of my like top three to five favorite things to do. A lot of people just hate it. And like, we kind of assume that like if someone's not like exercising a lot, it's just because they're lazy. Like laziness may factor into it to some degree, but like we also like exercising. Like I like exercising. I assume you guys like exercising. It's a like, good point. I suppose we, we wouldn't be writing fitness blogs if, if we didn't yeah. like exercising. Yeah. How much do you think of liking exercising comes down to you have an experience when you're younger whereby you, you're in some kind of discomfort, you, mm -hmm. you think exercise is a solution to, the, to said discomfort, and then you receive positive reinforcement for the change that's happened. And that just seems to self-perpetuate. You know, you start lifting, someone goes like, oh, your arms are looking big. <laughs> and then you're like, oh, wow. I'll start lifting uh, more, I'll st and then you you almost create that environment rather than it being a an inherent thing. I I definitely think that um, that yeah, like environmental factors and like positive or negative associations you have built up um, do influence it. But also, and I, I need to look these these studies up again. But uh, there is some work showing that just intrinsic reward to exercise does have like a moderately strong genetic component as well. Wow. So, uh, like genetic similarity explains like roughly like 40% of the variation or so in uh, habitual exercise. So th that's, that's not something that's as heritable as say like, um, IQ, which is roughly like genetic factors explain roughly like 80% of the variation in IQ, for example. So it's not it's not as strong of a relationship as that, but forty percent is is non negligible. Like that definitely like does play a role there. So there is a proportion of the population who are lifting and hate it and can't do anything about it. Pretty well, much. I thought our thoughts go out to you if that if that is you. <laughs> Greg, it's been great chatting. Thank you very, very much for for speaking to us. Um yeah, the last thing I suppose is just how do we find out more about you? And do you want to tell us a little bit about 
the mass product that I believe free issues went out today. Yeah, so uh, I do have a mass product coming out. It's the best weight gainer you're ever going to find. <laughs> uh, 45,000 calories per serving. Um, you... So let me, let me take this in order. Um, so you can find me at strongerbyscience.com. That's, that's where I do all of my writing. Um, and just Greg Knuckles on Facebook. I have a Twitter and Instagram, but don't follow me on there because I hate them. Um I'm I'm an old soul. You're the first Basically. person to say don't follow me don't, on, yeah. on Twitter. Yeah, I mean if 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 you want to see pictures of my dog, follow me on Instagram. Uh, Twitter, like the only the only tweets I ever tweet are just like things that are auto synced to my Facebook statuses, and I check my Twitter once a week. So if you tweet at me, don't expect a timely response. Um, okay, but anyway, strongerbyscience.com and just Greg Knuckles on Facebook. Um, now as for mass, it's the best. Then you so, do what? Yeah. Uh, no. So it's a, uh, mass stands for monthly applications and strength sport. Uh, it's a research review that I put together with Eric Helms and Mike Zordos. Um, it essentially fills the niche of, like research reviews for powerlifters, uh, weightlifters, strongmen, and physique athletes, so strength and physique athletes. Uh, I am not the person writing about physique athletes. That is Eric Helms, so don't you don't have to worry about that. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the, there are um, yeah, we we just saw that as like a, a need. Um, like there, we didn't see a, a product that did exactly what this does of taking the research. Uh, like and exclusively the research that's the most relevant to strength and physique athletes, um, and like breaking it down, telling people what they need to know on a monthly basis. Uh, so yeah, it's it's hyper focused to that population. Um, so yeah, if you're just if you just kind of lift for fun and run five Ks, it's completely worthless for you. But if you either want to just get jacked, get lean, or lift heavy weights. It is exactly the research review for you. So it's going to come out once a month. Uh, has nine nine new studies reviewed every month, handpicked to be like the most important and relevant for strength and physique athletes. Uh, and we're we're very very excited about it. the uh, The first issue, which is free, dropped today, and the first uh, paid issue, the, the launch of the actual product itself, uh, that's going to be May first. So mark your calendars. It's gonna be pretty awesome. So by the time that people listen to this, the the free issue will have will have come and gone, unfortunately. But where can where can someone get their hands on one of the paid editions? Um, man, I I should know this, shouldn't I? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, dang it, I I can't tell so, you yet. We'll we'll put a link we'll put a link in the show notes to this episode if you want to grab. No, I mean, since, since the sale isn't live yet, there's not like a sales page to give people the URL to yet. Okay. Um, there, will no, be. there will be. When you listen, yeah. there is when, now. When there is, <laughs> there is now. Okay. <laughs> we're in the future, Greg. We have to remember in the future. Okay. Sounds good. Or we're in the present. Oh. It's too late in the afternoon for this, or probably too early in the morning for you, Greg. <laughs> 
Greg, it's been great. Thank you very much for yeah, we'll send you a link if you can share it on Twitter or whatever it is that you that you use. <laughs> that I'll, would be awesome. I'll, I'll make sure to mention it in my Snapchat story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pick the most obscure social media. Maybe put it on like LinkedIn or something. And, uh... <laughs> <laughs> a LinkedIn article that'd be great. Yeah, loads of traffic. Awesome. Yeah, right, thanks man. a lot, Greg. I'll go. Th- I'll go through my uh, physical address book and fax it to everyone. Lovely. Oh, yes. Lovely. Fax, fax them the URL. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be great. 